I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Illinois saw its first case of the novel coronavirus one year ago this week. Since then, nearly 19,000 residents of the state have lost their lives, and the virus continues to spread. Look around the nation, outside of Illinois, and you'll see the pandemic at its worst in many places. The risk of a resurgence in Illinois, particularly with extremely contagious new variants, is serious. Now all eyes are on the vaccine effort. In one of his first moves in office, President Biden has pledged to get out 100 million doses in his first 100 days. I'm signing an executive action to use the Defense Production Act and all other available authorities to direct all federal agencies and private industry to accelerate the making of everything that needs to protect, test, vaccinate, and take care of our people. And today, Illinois officially started Phase 1B of the vaccine effort. Teachers, frontline essential workers, and anyone older than 65 are eligible for the vaccine. So things seem to be rolling, but how do we make sure the rollout is fair and equitable? All this week on Reset, we're examining who has access to the vaccine in our area, how it's being distributed, and how we can ensure that the most vulnerable among us are prioritized. It's the latest in our series, Closing the Gap, where we explore disparities in the Chicago region and talk to people working to address them. Now, in just a bit, we'll hear from a medical ethicist and critical care physician who's been working on this issue. But first, let's turn to Audra Wilson, president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. The center has a list of recommendations for the Illinois Department of Public Health and for the Biden administration. Audra, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us is Alice Goldfarb. She's the lead on the Atlantic's COVID racial data tracker, which collects and publishes COVID-19 data to understand the pandemic in the U.S. Alice, welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to first say that this is, of course, an ever-evolving situation. We learn new data and, and knowledge about this virus every single day. So we are bringing you the latest that we know at this juncture. Now, Audra, I'll start with you because we know that Latinx people are contracting the virus at higher rates than any other demographic. Black people are dying from it more than any other demographic. Why is it important that equity be factored, if not centered, in these next steps? You've just said it. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the magnitude of health inequities in the United States. It's highlighted structural racism, our institutions, practices, and policies. And the mortality rate is more than twice as high in Black, Latinx, and Indigenous populations than in white populations. And a lot of data reveals that there's a very strong socioeconomic component. So people who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum are also more likely to be affected. And so that's the reason why, as we're thinking about these vaccines being administered, it's essential that we assure equitable access for those who need it the most. Alice, can you pick up where Audra left off? Absolutely. I think that what Audra says about how this pandemic has exposed the structural factors is really important. And one of the things we're seeing is that the data doesn't entirely exist to understand the extent of that. Right. Everything that we are seeing in the data shows just how much disparity there is in the ways that people are being affected by COVID-19, but without more complete data, more consistent data, federal guidelines about what should be made public, we don't fully understand who is being affected and how and where. Yeah, this conversation is so timely. It's a critical time to be talking about this because the rollout is literally happening now. Audra, take a step backwards with me here. The disparities in COVID-19 outcomes mirror existing disparities in healthcare and access to quality for care for communities of color. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So there has been always historically a, a challenge with being able to get quality health care to communities of color. And while the Affordable Care Act was so monumental as it allowed many communities that had been previously disadvantaged not be able to access quality care to now have quality care, it's still a continuing problem. So whether people have good primary care physicians, whether they're getting full coverage, we are still in a country that relies upon employer-based health insurance, which is why the ACA was so important. Because if you happen to work for someplace that did not have employer-based health coverage, what were your options? So health equity, particularly communities of color, has been a longstanding issue. 
So when you combine that with where we are with COVID, even though there have been some very significant gains that have been made, it's just exposing again some of these problems. They're surfacing in ways that now we're seeing with when it comes to distribution, being able to get to their primary care physicians to have access, getting the information that they need to know uh, where do I go for treatment. So that's why there's this kind of cumulative problem that we have with healthcare access and now seeing it in light of COVID. Audra, we also know that Chicago schools staff is now part of phase 1B, and that begins today. And you have a list of who you think needs to be considered first. Can you share that with us? I think that the phase 1B right now that we have in Illinois actually is a really good list. They are essential frontline workers. You're talking about the people who are the most exposed on a daily basis, and they do not have the option to work from home. These also include from grocery store clerks to folks who are working in warehouses, manufacturing and food processing plants, where there have been many outbreaks happening because they cannot socially distance, and they have limited access to the type of PPE needed to keep them safe. There is one category that I noticed that is not on there, and it's also about domestic workers. You're talking about caregivers, so people who are maybe non-licensed, but they are people who are bathing, feeding, shopping, and they're helping folks at home. And so that is one uh, kind of glaring absence for me because that's more people who are being exposed. But generally speaking, the people who are on the list of 1B, um, it's very expansive, and they're hitting those individuals who are the most likely to be exposed to the virus. And your list highlights essential workers. Now, we got a lot of messages here at Reset from those of you who are working in the community. My name is Tom, and I'm calling from Belmont Heights. This is Rachel from Rogers Park. I'm a route driver for a company that services vending machines. I am an essential worker, and so is my partner. On any given week, I have to go into five or six different nursing homes to fill the vending machines in their businesses. I am worried about the vaccine rollout being equitable because some of our friends, they're both working from home, and they actually, someone that they know sent them like an invite code to log on to the Government of Health website and this invite code actually worked to get vaccinated. And I'm wondering if that makes me eligible as a healthcare worker for the vaccine. And if not, where it puts me in my terms of eligibility. That's kind of the point, Audra, that there are people on the front line still waiting for the vaccine. Absolutely. I mean, because you have two problems here. You have individuals who are now appearing on this 1B list that are eligible. But you also have, as you had reported earlier, a minimal amount of vaccines that are being made available per day for people to access. So even among the people who are who have now in this phase 1B, how do you apportion vaccines to those individuals when there's still a limited amount that's available? Alice, your tracking project started back in April, and it focuses on how the virus is impacting different populations. Your work was basically to fill in the gaps from what is a lack of comprehensive data from the federal government. Is that accurate? It is. And the project overall started in March with the state level data about tests and cases and hospitalizations and deaths. And the part that I work on looks at the race and ethnicity data that states and territories are reporting to better understand what's going on in Illinois for some populations compared to the state overall. And you know, a year into this, we're, we're not getting the federal data to really have a comprehensive sense of what's going on in the country and be able to compare how different states are reacting. And as we get into the vaccine rollout, we are again really hoping that, that we can get more comprehensive data to understand, in this case, are these vaccination efforts effective? Who is getting missed in the phases? Who is being impacted well by the choices that the states have made? Yeah. Chicago has language about having a Latinx response. Illinois has language about needing to do the vaccination in an equitable manner and talks about these multi-generational institutional racism, but without the details that sort of point to what they plan to do to implement that or to work on that. Mm-hmm. And because neither the city nor Cook County nor the state are reporting race and ethnicity data about who is being vaccinated, we will not be able to see if these efforts are matching the need are matching the places where people are testing positive and dying at much higher rates. 
Audra, let's talk more about the nuts and bolts uh, of getting essential workers vaccinated. What support do these groups really need from the government and, and their employers, too? One big thing is that we need to require employers to provide workers paid time off to obtain the vaccine and paid sick time in order to recuperate from any vaccine side effects. We've heard anecdotally that with that second shot, there have been people who've been having some adverse reactions, and that might warrant them needing to have some time off to recuperate. And so this is really important when you're talking about low-wage essential workers and also temporary workers, because temporary workers would not otherwise have this sort of protection. But we're talking about a public health crisis. So in this instance, there need to be accommodations that are made because it's not just about ensuring their safety, but ensuring the safety of all of those in the workplace. Incarcerated populations and and jail and prison workers are also on your list. That's Audra Wilson. She's the president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. And Alice Goldfarb, the lead on the Atlantic's COVID racial data tracker. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Now let's bring in another voice to the conversation, Dr. William Parker. He's assistant professor of medicine and faculty physician at the University of Chicago. He's also a medical ethicist specializing in the use of scarce medical resources, and he's been focused on equity. Dr. Parker, hello. Uh, Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, doctor, how much vaccine has been administered so far in Chicago, and should we be proud of where we're at right now, in your opinion? As of this morning, we just refreshed the website, 140,000 total doses administered, 107 of which are first doses. So that's a pretty solid number. You know, the, the problem is we don't actually know the denominator, meaning of how many doses we've received. The mayor tweeted out the supply a couple of weeks ago, but there hasn't been a, a more recent update than that. But it's probably somewhere in the order of close to 250,000. You just sort of extrapolate out, uh, piecing together what they've said publicly which puts us at probably a little bit over 50% of our available supply administered uh, on par with the state. Now, you wrote an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune uh, that was inspired by your personal experience at UChicago where you weren't allowed to distribute the vaccine to those most in need. Can you explain that? It's been sort of widely acknowledged that early in the vaccine rollout, we had a problem where the eligibility criteria were too narrow. Um, There was sort of excess supply for the number of patients who are eligible and other people who are eligible because it was restricted to just healthcare workers and nursing home recipients. And so hospitals worked through their frontline personnel, the people who were in direct patient contact relatively quickly and then had vaccine left over because of unexpectedly high hesitancy rates among healthcare workers in general. Also a lot of, you know, more backline people, you know, were working from home in our hospital, just felt like it wasn't right for them to take the vaccine because they're working from home remotely, even though they're critical to the hospital's operation um, and are essential workers, they're not frontline, right. even though they fall into that category. So there, we had excess vaccine and we wanted to start giving it to patients. And at that time, the city said we couldn't. Wow. You mentioned the mayor. You know, we, we've been hearing from Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Governor J.B. Pritzker that we don't have enough, right? And But we haven't even distributed all the doses that we have. So, in in fact, there's a significant amount of doses that are still sitting in freezers. Yeah, and I think that's a problem. You know, I think the the goal should be to use pretty much all of our available supply. And, you know, it's sort of a wartime mentality, right? Getting as many shots in the arms as quickly as possible, as equitably as possible, to focusing on the most vulnerable communities in our city. You know, I think... Right now, the vaccine should be incredibly easy to obtain in the south, south and west side communities that have been hardest hit by the virus. You know, it should be there and readily available, but it's not. Well, I thought this was interesting, Doctor. You you actually made uh, a map of Chicago in, inspired by a similar map of D.C., which it shows the area with the highest number of people dying from the virus and the areas which have received the most vaccines. And now those two areas on the map, they're diametrically opposed can you talk more about that? Yeah, it's disturbing, but not unexpected, I guess. Right. Uh, you know, I think if you know anything about where the racial segregation in the city of Chicago and you look at that map, it looks pretty familiar where, you know, pretty much to date, young white people have been the ones receiving the vaccine in the city. The city hasn't released racial data yet, but um, that I'm pretty sure that's what it would show based on where they live. And the death rate, as you mentioned, is inversely correlated with where the vaccines are going. So, in Woodlawn and South Shore, two communities south of Hyde Park where I work, you know, death rate somewhere uh, around 300 
per 100,000 people. That's five times higher than up in Lakeview. So correspondingly, I think it should be five times easier to get a vaccine in Woodlawn than Lakeview. That's what, you know, the sort of effort we're going to need to make um, in terms of proportional allocation of vaccine to mitigate these disparities and save more lives. Yeah. You know, the ethics of this is, are quite clear where the vaccine efforts need to be focused. It's just whether or not our leaders sort of have the moral courage to, to do it. That's Dr. William Parker, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Faculty Physician at University of Chicago. Dr. Parker, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. All this week on Reset, we're taking a closer look at inequities in vaccine access and distribution in the Chicago region. And we're talking with the people working to set it right. It's the latest in our series, Closing the Gap, where we explore disparities in our area and talk solutions. The fact of the matter is that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the magnitude of, of health inequities in the United States. It's highlighted structural racism, our institutions, practices, and policies. And the mortality rate is, is more than twice as high in Black, Latinx, and Indigenous populations and in white populations. And a lot of data reveals that there's a very strong socioeconomic component. That's Audra Wilson, president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. According to recent info from the city, half of the Chicagoans who have gotten a vaccine so far are white. Just 17 percent are Latino, 15 percent are Black, and 14 percent are Asian. Health officials and researchers say one way to make distribution more diverse is to make vaccine trials more diverse. In a moment, we'll hear from healthcare workers leading this effort at the local and national levels. But first, we wanted to know what it was like to be part of a COVID-19 vaccine trial. So let's turn to Bonnie Blue. Hi, Bonnie. Well, thanks for having me. Also with us is Eduardo Rolox. Hi, Eduardo. Hi. Now, both of you were the very first participants of a COVID-19 vaccine trial in Chicago. And Bonnie, this wasn't an easy decision for you because your, your friends and family were highly against it and your health condition has been challenging over the years. So tell me, why did you still want to participate in a vaccine trial? Well, since I was 19, uh, I have been fighting asthma. I spent most of my life in hospitals on life support and waking up in ICUs. So knowing how that feels and knowing that I definitely would not want anyone else to go through that kind of misery and fear, I felt it was my responsibility to step forward and put myself out there, take the vaccine or be part of the trial so that others can see that it's safe. Because if I can take the vaccine, whether or not it was during the trial or afterwards, with my health issues, I'm fine. And you will be all right. Eduardo, let's hear from you because you felt like you needed to step up too, right, and, and participate in this vaccine trial. Tell, tell us more about what made you volunteer. First of all, I wanted to take part in something that was historic in nature and revolutionary. Because an mRNA vaccine has never made it past clinical trials. And this is very new technology that's very exciting because it has implications way beyond COVID as far as treatments for cardiovascular problems, cancer, multiple sclerosis, and a whole lot of other illnesses. And also, I'm part of a high-risk group whose life expectancy is about a week's time if they should come down with COVID complications. Okay. So I really wanted to do something desperately to um, save myself from being in that predicament. Now, you both recently found out what you received during the trial. Bonnie, you received the placebo. So how did you feel throughout the process? Did you have any concerns? Initially, I was really excited, and I actually thought I received the actual vaccine. But even though I thought that I was protected, I still continued to wear my mask. I continued to stay in my bubble. But, of course, I did receive the actual vaccine then. Eduardo, you actually received the vaccine in your trial. What was your experience like? 
after I received the first shot, my arm was extremely sore for like about three or four days to the extent that I called my personal physician and I complained to him about it. And he's a um, infectious disease specialist and immunologist. So he said, oh, with that vaccine, it, that's, that's a normal reaction to it. So I wasn't particularly concerned. But then after the second shot, I had chills and fevers and headaches and all the side effects that people were complaining about. And it wasn't until I um, went for the unblinding that I actually learned that I received the vaccine itself. So before we let you go, tell us, Eduardo, how do you hope your participation will help with this fight against COVID-19? Well, I'm hoping people can see that there is transparency in the process of the vaccine approval. There's a lot of participation by people of color in the study, and people should really lay aside their fears and look towards their best interest, their Mm -hmm. best well-being. Bonnie, I'll give you the last word here. Okay, what my hope is, is that people will see and hear regular people, such as Eduardo and myself, and we decided to go ahead and do it, and we both have medical issues, and we're still here. It's better to go on, get vaccinated, deal with a little discomfort for a few days versus being in ICU alone and afraid, and this was something that could be avoided. That's Bonnie Blue and Eduardo Rolox, the first participants of a COVID-19 vaccine trial in Chicago. They both completed the Moderna vaccine trial at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Bonnie and Eduardo, thanks so much for your time today. Thank Thank you for having us. Let's turn now to two healthcare workers taking a lead on vetting vaccines at the local and national levels. Joining us now is Dr. Lois Clark. She's the Director of Clinical Research at Loretto Hospital in the Austin neighborhood on the west side. Hi, Dr. Clark. Good morning. Also with us is Dr. Lakeisha Butler. She's a member of the COVID-19 Task Force on Vaccines and Therapeutics for the National Medical Association, which is the nation's largest and oldest organization representing African-American physicians and professionals in the country. And she's also a clinical professor for the School of Pharmacy at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Dr. Butler, welcome to Reset. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Now, we just heard from two of Chicago's very first vaccine trial participants. They're both people of color and they're in high-risk groups. Dr. Butler, I'll start with you. Tell us why diversity is so important in clinical trials, especially in ongoing COVID-19 vaccine trials. Well, unfortunately, we saw the disparities highlighted amongst minoritized communities, specifically the African-American and Black community, the Hispanic community, um, as it relates to to COVID-19. Higher hospitalizations, higher cases of COVID-19, but more importantly, higher rates of death. So because of these disparities, we want to ensure that we understand how the vaccines uh, work in, in these communities, but more importantly, we want to, to get the vaccine to these populations, and so distribution is critical. Now, Dr. Clark, I want to bring you into this conversation because COVID-19 vaccine trials at Loretto Hospital, they're expected to start in March. Now, ensuring diversity in these trials is a top priority for the hospital. So can you tell us more about that and how Loretto is trying to make sure that that actually happens? Yes. So ensuring diversity in the trials is really a top priority for us as well as really becoming a mandate for trials in general, bringing, making sure that they're diverse. We wanted to bring this to the community, specifically our community, which is largely black and brown, so that they would see that we had confidence in the trials and that we are a trusted source of medical information for them. And we're here for them to participate in the trials. So it's not that the virus is necessarily going to choose black or white, but it is 
as Dr. Butler said, has been harder on our community. So it's important that we participate in these clinical trials. It's important that people feel confident, and that's why we wanted to, by being one of the largest employers in the Austin area and a hospital right in the heart of our community, we wanted to participate in these trials. I want to take a step back, Dr. Clark, because I think the average person, when they hear the phrase vaccine trial, and we hear it so much, some people still don't really understand what that entails. Tell us, like, how long does it take? And how often do you check in with patients? And what if they have an adverse reaction? So the, the vaccine trial, if, if when a person gets on a trial, it may take a year to two years. That doesn't mean that they are here every day, but it does mean that we will be checking in on them for those two years. They will come in, they will be screened, um, they will get, for example, blood work, they will certainly get a physical exam, they will become part of the trial after they're screened, and then after that, our team checks in with them on a pre-scheduled time, so we're with them the whole way through the trial. Mm. They have access to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. Now, Dr. Butler, what are you finding in your research with the task force around COVID-19 vaccine candidates and the clinical process? What we're finding is certainly the safety and efficacy associated with with the, the vaccine candidates. Specifically, we are looking at the number of uh, Black participants in the clinical trials. We're looking at if there are any specific differences in the way that individuals responded to, to the vaccine as it relates to the, the safety or the side effects, adverse effects. We're also starting to speak with the other vaccine candidate manufacturers, such as AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, to learn more about the platform or the methodology and the mechanism of their specific vaccine candidate. What I'm very proud of is the intentionality and in, in getting this significant representation in the clinical trials uh, to date. So to date, we've seen about 10% of the clinical trial participants being African-American. And that is significant when we look at or compare to other clinical trials of the past. On average, we normally see between 3 and 5% mm. of participation with Blacks. And, and so this 10% is significant, and it helps us to be able to translate that to the general community. Wow, that's, that's double. That's great. That's Dr. Lakeisha Butler, a member of the COVID-19 Task Force on Vaccines and Therapeutics for the National Medical Association and a clinical professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and Dr. Lois Clark, Director of Clinical Research at Loretto Hospital in the Austin neighborhood on the west side. Dr. Butler, Dr. Clark, thanks so much for your work and your time today. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. It's day three of our latest Closing the Gap series. This round, we're exploring disparities around the COVID-19 vaccine, both access and distribution. And as always, we're talking with people on the ground working to solve those issues. Stats tell us that Black and Latino Chicagoans contract and die from the virus at the highest rates. But they're not getting the vaccine at the highest rates. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said Monday that a, quote, unexpectedly low number of Black and Brown Chicagoans have taken the vaccine and that it was a, quote, alarmingly low percentage. One factor, distrust of the shot. So on today's Closing the Gap, we want to know what's being done to build trust around the vaccine in these hard-hit communities. Coming up, we'll hear from a local physician and researcher on social disparities. But first, WBEZ's own Maria Inez Zamudio. Her latest story is how promotoras de salud are fighting misinformation in Chicago's Latino communities. Hi, Maria. Hi, Sasha. Tell us about your latest reporting. What's a community health worker or promotora de salud? Yes. So promotores de salud are essentially a peer-to-peer health education model where a community leader receives training on a specific topic. In this case, for example, is COVID-19. And then they bring that information to their community in a peer-to-peer model where the information is going both ways, right? The person is able to ask questions and follow-ups and there is the trust from that community member. And there's no barriers between, you know, a 
medical health professional and the person receiving the information. It's, it's, the information is actually a much more organic flow. Mm -hmm. And it's been an effective model in dealing with chronic illnesses like diabetes. For example, um, some healthcare providers in Chicago have hired Promotoras de Salud to talk to patients who have uncontrolled diabetes and share information about how to control that, that diabetes. And I've heard from folks who administer these programs um, who tell me that doctors have seen a lot of progress when they see those patients back and they come back with better diabetes numbers. Well, Maria, Latinos have the highest infection rates in Chicago. That's a huge concern. Can you Help us understand why this community has been so disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Yes, Sasha, this community has been deeply impacted by the virus. And as you mentioned, Latinos have the highest rate of infection in Chicago. And many of the zip codes in the state of Illinois with the highest infection rates are among Latino zip codes. Uh, for example, Bellman Cragen in Chicago's north side has the second highest numbers of COVID-19 cases in the state uh, since the start of the pandemic. And recent data shows that Latinos are dying of COVID-19 at much younger age compared to other ethnic groups. So this is not surprising given the fact that a large percentage of this community um, works in as essential workers. They can't work from home. In fact, national figures tells us that about only 16% of Latinos are able to work from home. And things get worse because these workers, once they get infected, they come back to their homes and they typically live in multi-generational homes. Right. Uh, so you see the spread of the virus um, just like continue. So give us the real here. Does the Latino community trust this vaccine? The Latino community is very diverse. So I, I want to talk about what I've seen both from my reporting and then also from the live event that we hosted at BEZ last week. Great. And that showed that there was a lot of distrust of whether this vaccine is actually safe. Um, and I think that there's a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration when we're looking at, at those facts, right? So I want to take a step back and, and highlight that in Chicago, about 23% of the population speaks Spanish. Uh, that's a large percentage of the population. And there's very few options for Spanish language media and reliable information. As a result, this population often turns to social media. And there's a lot of misinformation posted on those platforms. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that talk about the safety of the vaccine. Um, and this is why it's been really important for folks like Promotoras de Salud to go out and provide reliable information to that community. So we're hearing, Maria, a lack of trust for the government. What are some of these rumors? You know, in the interest of time, I wanted to take a closer look at some of them because I think it reflects the reality uh, that this community has lived over the last four years under um, the Trump administration and his policies around immigration. And also the racist things that he said about Mexicans and other immigrants. And so the rumor basically goes like this. President Donald Trump created the vaccine. His administration created the vaccine. President Trump wants to kill immigrants. So therefore, the vaccine will kill undocumented immigrants. Mm. That rumor obviously is not true. But I think it speaks to the anxiety and the fear that is alive in this community. And, and, and this community has been feeling like that for years. Other rumors also include the fact that folks really think that the government is actually injecting you with the virus. And they've seen from family members, because a lot of them have seen um, they've been impacted by the virus. So they see how drastic and how bad this virus is so in their minds they're thinking well wait a minute you're injecting me with a virus like that how can that be safe right how can the government do that and so these rumors really spread quickly on facebook and whatsapp that's maria inez samudio wbez immigration reporter maria thank you so much for being with us thank you sasha Turning now to our next voice, Dr. Monica Peake. She's a physician and researcher on social disparities from UChicago Medicine on this issue. I started out our conversation with her by asking if she was seeing this distrust from her patients. Yes, I have. And 
what is I think particularly concerning is that we're seeing this amongst hospital employees and healthcare workers. And because this has been the bulk of who's been vaccinated first in phase 1A. And so this is just a preview of what's to come. So if we have people that are working in hospital systems that are seeing COVID and its devastation, people who are exposed to COVID and are at higher risk and are still having, you know, significant hesitation about the vaccine and deferring getting vaccinated, then we know that we have a significant amount of work that lies ahead for the rest of the community. So what are they saying to you? Where Where is that coming from, from these hospital employees and patients? Well, we know that there is sort of a baseline level of mistrust within healthcare systems. We know that there are always concerns about vaccines and new technology, but there's an additional layer of mistrust that I've not seen before particularly related to this vaccine that is, frankly, uh, related to, to two things. One, the newness of the vaccine, the rapidity with which it came out, and the fact that it was developed under the Trump administration. And so those two things have made it particularly challenging for marginalized communities who have suffered disproportionately under the prior administration and have seen the kinds of authoritarian moves, who've seen the corruption and the things that the former president was willing to do uh, for personal gain with disregard to the public's health. That makes people concerned that perhaps this vaccine may not be something that is safe for the public. Now, as it turns out, it is safe for the public that there were firewalls that kept our former president from actually influencing the process, but that sometimes is a bit of a hard sell. What we have been leaning into is the fact that we know that this vaccine is our best chance for protecting loved ones and for fighting against this pandemic. I myself has been vaccinated. I've gotten both vaccines. And how did it go? I, my, great. I had just a little bit of soreness and then it went away. My mother got vaccinated yesterday and I cried, you know. And so everyone that I hold dear, everyone that I love, I have been actively, you know, advocating for them to get vaccinated. This is how we are going to end the pandemic. And particularly for people who are black and brown and have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic, we need to get behind this vaccine. This is our best tool to protect us. And so it's understandable, but unfortunate that our best chance for hope is one that a lot of people in the community are afraid of, yeah. but we have to, you know, sort of walk through that fear and get to the other side. Now, you say you understand the distrust of Black Americans. It's got a long history in this country. Mm -hmm. Here's a moment from Dan Royals, assistant professor of history at Florida International University, in a recent Reset conversation, who explains it. So the Tuskegee syphilis trial was a 40-year study conducted at Tuskegee University in Alabama, that was conducted by scientists and doctors from the U.S. Public Health Service. And what they wanted to do was to track the progression of untreated syphilis in the human body. And so they tracked the progression of untreated syphilis in a cohort of poor black men from the rural communities around Tuskegee. Henrietta Lacks was a tobacco farmer from Maryland, and in 1951, she knew that something was wrong in her body. Um, and she went to Johns Hopkins University Medical Center to be treated, and they found a tumor on her cervix and took a sample from that tumor. And she passed away from the cancer. But her family didn't know that these cells had been you know, taken from her body until decades after her death. Dr. Peek, what effect have those examples had on Black Americans' mindsets and what about smaller indignities that they endure? Yes, all of this is part of our lived experience, our individual lived experience and our shared lived experience where our lives are devalued within this country. 
and that impacts the, the daily decisions that we make, our calculated decisions that we make about, you know, what it ultimately is going to be best and safest for us. So in order for communities to change that calculus, what that means is that the country is going to have to change how it treats black and brown people. You know, what we're doing is, you know, the short game of engaging trusted leaders, leveraging social and cultural capital, doing public health campaigns, and really trying to think about trusted people, spaces, and places so that we can meet people where they are and get vaccine utilization rates higher. Yeah. We have to think about the long game also and how we got here and what it's going to take to reverse those underlying feelings. You know, we're just coming out of 2020 and and we don't even say 2020 at this point. We just had white supremacists try and overthrow our government. And so we have to acknowledge the state of racial politics in this country Black people have to feel safe in this country and valued in this country in all ways in order to feel like what the government is offering is going to be safe for us, not just from, you know, back in the days of Tuskegee and back in the days of Henrietta Lacks, but today. You've explored how racial and cultural barriers impact physician-patient relations, and you've done research on the South Side. What have you learned about how important that relationship is? It is critical. We are going to have to lean into those relationships right now. In addition to the trusted community leaders, in addition to, you know, working with community health workers who are frequently trusted bridges between healthcare systems and communities, in addition to using trusted community spaces like our libraries and our food depositories and other places where people feel physically safe, we're going to have to also lean into what we know is a trusted space, and that is the bond between patients and their physicians, particularly when Physicians look like their patients. That's Dr. Monica Peak, Associate Professor of Medicine at U Chicago Medicine. Dr. Peak, thank you so much for your great work and for taking the time to talk with us today. All week, we've been tackling inequities in vaccine access and distribution in Chicago and Illinois. It's part of our ongoing series, Closing the Gap, where we explore disparities in our region and talk with people working to literally close those gaps. We've talked about how to ensure the most vulnerable people are being prioritized for COVID-19 vaccines. When we talked about the push for diversity in clinical trials, we brought you Chicago's first COVID-19 vaccine trial participants and two healthcare workers vetting the vaccine. In part three, we talked more about building trust around the vaccine, specifically in black and brown communities hit hardest by the virus. Everyone that I hold dear, everyone that I love, I have been actively advocating for them to get vaccinated. This is how we are going to end the pandemic. And particularly for people who are black and brown and have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic, we need to get behind this vaccine. This is our best tool to protect us. Today, we're wrapping things up with a closer look at how your access to the vaccine could be affected by where you live. Experts have their eyes on rural communities, Finding health care is already challenging in farm country. On top of that, surveys show many in rural areas are skeptical about the vaccine. So joining us now to discuss this and more is WBEZ general assignment reporter Mariah Wolfel. Hi, Mariah. Hey, Sasha. First, rural areas felt the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic much later than other areas, particularly during the fall surge. So lay out some of the unique challenges that rural areas face in responding to the pandemic. Yeah. So like everywhere, the pandemic has really laid bare issues with healthcare systems within all communities, right? And so 
historically, rural areas have had issues with accessing healthcare. They've had issues with resources. A lot of rural health systems are underfunded, understaffed. As you can imagine, hospitals can be up to 100 miles away from where someone lives. I spoke to one doctor who he works at a critical care hospital, which is, you know, critical care hospitals are meant to provide access in remote areas in rural America where healthcare is harder to find. And he said he has 20 beds. He has no intensive care unit beds, which are crucial when treating, you know, the coronavirus. And the nearest hospital that does have ICU beds and ventilators and all of these higher tech equipment that you need to treat the pandemic is an hour away. In terms of the vaccine, you know, when we see the Pfizer vaccine distribution, we've heard about these cold storage facilities that you need in order to store the Pfizer vaccine. Those are far and few between in rural areas. And then, you know, vaccine hesitancy rates, they're they're higher in rural areas. And that's been a challenge throughout the entire pandemic. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, Mariah, national surveys are showing vaccine hesitancy is a big hurdle for rural areas. Can you unpack that a bit more for us? So the main survey I've looked at is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. They do surveys every month on attitudes towards vaccine, and they break it down by demographics and identifiers. Some of the highest hesitancy rates are among Republicans. They're among rural residents, so there's a lot of overlap there, as you can imagine, and then among Black Americans. But as you can also probably imagine, they're hesitant for very different reasons. Rural residents tend to be hesitant about taking a vaccine because they don't think the virus is as serious as it's made out to be by the quote-unquote media, whereas Black Americans, they're most worried about possible side effects. They have more mistrust of public health officials, and so they're more in the category of wanting to wait and see how this vaccine plays out, whereas rural residents are more likely to say they definitely will not be taking this vaccine because they don't think it's necessary. There's several reasons for that. I mean, if you look at the way COVID-19 hit rural areas, it didn't hit rural areas as hard as it did urban areas in the beginning. And so that could be a contributing factor to not thinking the virus is as serious. And even though it's hitting areas harder now, there was this initial disbelief in the virus that was also amplified by politicians. Well, you were also able to, in your reporting, connect with a rural resident who didn't want to be named about why he's hesitant about receiving the vaccine. Tell us more about him and what he had to say. He is a 48-year-old resident of Streeter, Illinois. Um, That's about 100 miles southwest of Chicago. I found him because he was commenting on his local public health department's website, asking about the vaccine. And so I messaged him to see what his thoughts were. And he doesn't think a vaccine is necessary. I don't feel this virus warrants a rushed vaccine. I kind of feel that's what we, we have an immune system for. I just think it's a pretty much another flu bug. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that one, too. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he wanted to reiterate to me, he thinks this virus is very serious and can have very serious outcomes for elderly and people who are at risk. But he does not think that he as a young, healthy person should have to take a vaccine. I asked him if he has a doctor who he would want to talk to the vaccine about. And he said, you know, he's already made up his mind. Hmm. You also spoke with several doctors and, and health officials about the issue. What did you find there? So they're just trying really hard to go above and beyond their day job to try to combat this. So that means taking calls on off hours. That means posting on social media a lot more. I spoke to Dr. Joey Jackson. He's a rural clinic doctor in El Dorado, which is about 4,000 people. It's Southern Illinois, 30 minutes away from Kentucky. And he kind of paints a picture of what he's contending with. We're, We're Bible Belt down here. And there have been some ministers who have been preaching from the pulpit, just an anti-science rhetoric, you know, much like a political figure, you know, that they've got people who trust them to be saying the right thing. You know, that's been pretty dark at times because it's like, well, who, who am I trying to say? I'm trying to say people who, who, who think I'm a fraud, you know, and, and that's that's been tough. Wow. He says, who am I trying to save? I'm trying to save people who think I'm a fraud, and that's been pretty tough. And so... People I've spoken to have said they've never seen doctors have to be as outspoken as they have during this pandemic. You know, they're taking on this education, this public relations role. They're now the models for people getting a vaccine. And so they really are you mm-hmm. know, just dealing with a ton. That's WBEZ General Assignment Reporter Mariah Wolfel. Mariah, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Sasha. 
Now some rural areas are finding success with the initial rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. Places like Ford County in East Central Illinois, population 13,000. Gibson Area Hospital and Health Services has been leading the effort there. On the line with us now to discuss is Rob Schmidt. He's the hospital's CEO, and he's also a member of the 2021 Rural Health Services Council for the American Hospital Association. Rob, welcome to Reset. Good morning, Sasha. Thanks for having me. I want to get your reaction to what we just heard. Does anything resonate with what you've been hearing from hospital staff or what you're actually seeing on the ground at Gibson Hospital? Absolutely. We, uh, like many rural places and really like a lot of counties across the state, are in the uh, limited doses shortage uh, area as far as how many doses we're getting to distribute the vaccine. We also have our fair share of, of skeptics in our communities uh, for multiple reasons. But what we're finding is right now, the groups that are eligible, 1A, 1B, and 1C, are all very interested in getting the vaccine. So school teachers, essential workers, uh, 65 and older are all clamoring for the vaccine and asking me and many of our staff, you know, when can I get it? When is my turn? How do I get in line? And our response is simply, we'll get it as fast as we can. It's limited on how many doses we get distributed through Ford County, through the state, et cetera. So uh, we have people who are wanting it, who are ready to get it. Yeah, We're ready uh, from a resources standpoint to put it in people's arms, but it's just getting the numbers out. Well, Ford County was one of the first 50 counties in Illinois to receive vaccine doses. That's because the county had one of the highest death rates per capita in the state. And for context, as of yesterday, there have been more than 1,400 cases and 41 deaths in the county. Tell us briefly, Rob, how Gibson Hospital has been faring during the pandemic. Well, as your uh, reporters pointed out in the beginning, we did not see a lot of COVID here. Uh, in fact, we only had one patient in the first go-round, if you will. Uh, we did have a couple of outbreaks from a few community events that didn't social distance or wear masks, and so then our community kind of freaked out a little bit. So we actually held a free drive-through uh, testing clinic in the summer that was uh, well attended, and, and we were doing about a 1,000 tests a week uh, from people from as far as 100 miles away uh, driving down here to get a free test. Mm -hmm. And then in the fall, like everyone else, is when we got more COVID hit. We actually had to set up a COVID wing in our hospital. Uh, we had as many as uh, eight patients at one time in our COVID wing. And after the uh, two holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, now that has started to subside again, we've actually taken our COVID wing back down and we're getting back down to more normal levels of COVID as the entire state rates come down. Our rates are also down. Just in the hospital, our, our positivity rate is under 4%. Mm -hmm. and in our physician clinics in the county, our positivity rate is down below 10%. So how many doses did the hospital initially get and, and how did they arrive? So our first round of doses was just a hundred. We've been getting just a hundred doses a week, and our very first um, doses were Pfizer, and uh, the Pfizer ones are the ones that have to be eighty below zero, you know, for storage. And right. So they come through Chicago, and then they go to Peoria, and then they go to Champaign, and then they go to Ford County, and then they end up at the hospital. So that's kind of the chain of command of how they get routed through the state. And uh, the first 100 doses, because it's Pfizer and we did not at the time have uh, storage capacity, uh, we, we used them right away. The first day, all those 100 doses were given. Wow. And then as Moderna has been coming out and we've continued to get about 100 doses a week, uh, Moderna does not need the 80 below zero. So um, we do have storage capacity for that. But we're not holding vaccine doses back for like the second dose. We're not... Um, trying to store any, we're, we're giving out as, as many as we can get, we're mm -hmm. giving out. And uh, we have had uh, our second round of Pfizer. So there are uh, at least 200 people who've gotten their second dose, either of Pfizer and Moderna. And now um, through working with the health department, we've started getting now 200 doses a week. And we just got our Pfizer freezer in last Friday. So now we actually have storage capacity for Pfizer doses, which we're trying to tell the state now we can hold up to 5,000 doses of Pfizer if we can get them. 
That's Rob Schmidt. He's CEO of Gibson Area Hospital and Health Services. He's also a member of the 2021 Rural Health Services Council for the American Hospital Association. Rob, thanks for your great work and for your time today. Thank you very much. Let's bring in another voice joining us now to discuss possible solutions to some of the issues that we're seeing with the initial rollout of the vaccine is Sheldon Jacobson. He's a founder professor of computer science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor Jacobson, welcome to Reset. Well, thank you for having me. First, I'd like you to break down the key factors that actually go into the vaccine supply chain and distribution system. Well, there are four basic components. One is the actual production or manufacturing. Then there is the distribution. Then there's the allocation. And then finally, there is the immunization, so-called last mile. So if we look at the supply chain as being these connected links, any time any one of the links starts to weaken, then the supply chain starts to, in fact, uh, subperform or underperform what we hope it to be. Professor, you apply your expertise in uh, data-driven, risk-based assessment to evaluate and inform public policy and public health. So what is your assessment of vaccine access and distribution in Illinois? What's working and, and what do we still need to fix? Well, if we look at the Illinois Department of Public Health website, right now they have uh, one million doses that they have received but have not been administered. So they are somewhere in the distribution and allocation phase. Uh, Right now there is a shortage of vaccines simply because the demand is so high, and that's both in urban and rural areas. And if you compare the state of Illinois to many other states, we're fairly middling in terms of the percentage of doses that we've been able to administer so far. My view is that the vaccine manufacturers are handling the manufacturing risk quite well. They're making some adjustments right now, which are in fact causing a slight reduction in production so that they can ramp up a little later, in particular in in late winter, early spring. So we're going to have a massive surge of availability of the product. And uh, right now it's a slight hiccup. The real challenge is what is referred to as the last mile, getting the vaccines into the arms of people. And the last thing we really want to do is have high-level administrators micromanaging the actual last mile process. Give the vaccines where they can be allocated, because every vaccine that sits in a refrigerator system is basically not protecting anybody and ultimately can lead to to poor outcomes and deaths. We want to get them into people's arms as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also the larger issue of not having reliable, consistent data and communication at the federal, state, and local levels. How can this be addressed moving forward? Well, we do need a better... communication program. One of the things that, that, that in fact, was just mentioned by the previous guests uh, is the fact that young people don't want to take the vaccine. They don't think it's an issue. But the key is that there is personal health and there is population health. As long as the virus continues to circulate, and this has not been widely communicated, but because it's an RNA virus, it will mutate. And the more times it finds a new host, a new person, it has a greater chance. So even though young people don't have a personal health risk, the fact that it circulates among them gives the virus the opportunity to mutate, and those mutations create tremendous population risk. You don't hear anybody talking about this, yet this is one of the great dilemmas that we're dealing with with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Very briefly, before we let you go, tell us your recommendations for how we can have a more even and equitable distribution of this vaccine in this state and across the country. The CDC recommendations that were put out, I think, were fundamentally flawed, that they tried to micromanage who was going to get it. I believe the healthcare workers had to be number one, people over 75, over 65, because the data supports that. After that, when you start getting into the minutia of health uh, conditions, smokers are on the list, which make absolutely no sense. Uh, I believe that if you simply based it on age, it's easier to verify and the data supports that. And if we did that, we can have a more equitable and a more efficient process of allocating the vaccines. That's Professor Sheldon Jacobson with the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor Jacobson, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Now this wraps up the latest installment of our Closing the Gap series on vaccine access and distribution, but we'll continue to look into other important issues and work to answer your questions about the vaccine and COVID-19.
My name is Reba. I'm part of the disability community here in Chicago. Hello, my name is Tanya. I'm calling from Hinsdale. I'm trying to find out what the status is for giving vaccines to people with disabilities with severe pre-existing conditions. If you do not have a computer or access to a computer or a family member with a computer or a smartphone, how does one find out or get information on location and time for appointments? Reva, Tanya, thank you so much for your questions. We're working to answer them very soon.